Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Scripture for today is from Genesis 48, verses 3 through 4. This is the word of God. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared at me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Let's open our time in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, We're grateful to to enter into it uh, yet again. And uh, we just pray your Holy Spirit would come upon us with, with power this morning as we read this text, as we study, as we hear from you, that we might be convicted of things we need to be convicted about, that we might be comforted in things where we need to be comforted. And Lord, transform us by the, the renewing of our mind, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. This summer I read a great book called Redemptive Reversals and the Ironic Overturning of Human Wisdom by Greg Beale. And it was a great read, not just because I could steal part of his title for my sermon today, which you'll see in your outline, but Beale is always so insightful when it comes to the big picture of the Bible's story. And in this book, he points out many of the ironies and reversals in redemptive history. God clearly likes to reverse things in terms of how the world thinks it should go. The last shall be first. The the weak are made strong. Our greatest strength actually is found in our weakness. The poor are made rich and the rich are made poor. Those who give away are the ones who ultimately receive. And our salvation comes through an incredible irony and reversal, doesn't it? The Lord Jesus... The eternal Son of God became poor to make many rich. He veiled His glory, as we considered in our Lord's Supper this morning, to become human and lowered Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And just when it looks like Satan had won, we see the greatest reversal of all, don't we? The resurrection from the very depths of shame and apparent defeat to the heights of glory and and the victory is one. Well, way back in Genesis, um, there are also a great many reversals, even before we get to our passage today. Abel is chosen over the firstborn Cain. Uh, Jacob is chosen over the firstborn Esau. Perez over Zerah. And throughout the life of Joseph, we've seen the visible circumstances are often the opposite of what God is actually doing behind the scenes. God often does the ironic or the unexpected and reverses things, contrary to human wisdom. And so it continues in our passage today. I invite you to follow along in your own Bibles as we go through our text. And we're going to see our passage is marked by four reversals. Each of them is a main point in your sermon outline, which I invite you to use as we go through. 
And then we'll consider some further application uh, for us today. So number one in your outline, the reversal of power. Joseph greater than Jacob. Let's, let's read in, ver- in, in uh, chapter 47, verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when, t- when the time grew near that Israel must die... He called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of of his bed. Let's stop there. As we saw last week, God had sovereignly put Joseph in the place of governance in the great land of Egypt, the, the nation that, that held all the cards during the famine. And we see here in verse 27 the strong contrast between how Jacob's family prospered as opposed to the rest of the Egyptians who basically had to sell everything to Pharaoh in order just to survive. Israel was flourishing. Tremper Longman points out that this particular phrase, that they were fruitful and multiplied greatly, is reminiscent, isn't it, of both God's command to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1, as well as, more importantly for this passage today, the promise of Abraham, that his descendants would become a great nation, Genesis 12. So we see the makings of the Lord's promise beginning fulfillment, despite... Jacob coming to the end of his life here, we see God's plan moving forward unhindered. In terms of this sovereign plan, Jacob spends 17 years here, note, at the end of his life with Joseph, the exact number of years he spent with him at the beginning of Joseph's life. Kent Hughes notes these 17-year bookends, if you will, of the Jacob-Joseph story illustrate God's orchestration of of all these events that have seemed so unpredictable and unexpected, haven't they? But this is the Lord who declared to Isaiah, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The Lord literally compelled Jacob to move to this place in Egypt by force of circumstances to begin this 400-year period giving birth, if you will, to the nation of Israel. In verse 29, it says, When the the time grew near that Israel must die, I like the, the ESV rendering here, the time that Israel must die. This is, again, part of the sovereign plan, and Jacob knows it. He knows something of his role at this point in the divine drama, and that is to pass on confidence in the promises of God, to tell his sons and grandsons something of the future of their people. And it's Jacob's clinging to this promise that prompts him to ask Joseph to bring his body back to the land when I'm gathered to my fathers. That's his spiritual understanding of what happens when he dies. Don't bury my body here. 
bring it back to the land of promise so that our bodily remains being together can symbolize what's happening in the spiritual realm, a great reunion. Swear to me, this is a big deal. Most scholars agree that put your hand under my thigh is a euphemism for putting one's hand on a very sensitive part of that region of the body. It's meant to convey the seriousness of the oath. As if to say, this promise is connected to the source of life itself and to my descendants. It is a declaration of Jacob's faith in God's promise to Abraham. The land promised to Abraham's seed forever. Abraham had in faith purchased the tomb, remember, for the, in that land for Sarah, his wife. And he himself had been buried next to her there in faith. Later, Isaac's bones had been laid alongside theirs in faith. Like them, Jacob, in faith, looked to God's promises to be fulfilled. Wilcox points out, there's an unspoken temptation here for Jacob. There's an unspoken temptation here for Jacob. Things are good in Goshen. His people are flourishing, well-fed, prospering. Why leave? This is not the land of promise, that's why. As we considered uh, with Rick last week in that passage, Goshen is great, it's a blessing, but it's not home. It's not the land that was promised to my grandfather. That's where I belong. He knows he will not see his family established in the promised land, but before he dies, he wishes to do everything he can to anchor his children in the promise. So bury me there. The last part of verse 31, Israel then bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the famous reference in Hebrews chapter 11 in that hall of faith, as it's called, where the author illustrates the faith of Jacob. He worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Very similar wording in Hebrew to the head of his bed. But the idea is that he's too old and feeble to bow down prostrate on the ground. So he leans or bows the best he can and worships. What a picture. As he's dying, he's praising God. As Boyce says, Testimony to the grace and faithfulness of God is valuable in any period of life and in any circumstances, but it is especially meaningful at the end of life as death threatens. He points out something else here. Earlier in life, Jacob had been given the name Israel, which referenced or was signified the change in Jacob once he'd been brought to fully submit to God. But there were many times after that, weren't there, where Jacob is nevertheless still called Jacob, no doubt with great meaning. Although God's child, Jacob still often operated as an immature believer, didn't he? But notice here at the end, in these verses that describes Jacob's last acts and final testimony, the name Israel is prominent, and the name Jacob is less frequent. Then Israel bowed himself at the head of his bed. Two verses later, verse 2, Israel summoned his strength. Verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons. Verse 10, when the eyes of Israel were dim. Verse 11, Israel said to Joseph. 13, Israel's left hand, Israel's right hand. Israel stretched out his right hand. As boy says, Israel had been conquered by God. And that's why he saw life from God's perspective. Now, 
In terms of reversal, Jacob asks Joseph to deal kindly and truly with him. This is the Hebrew chesed, the the covenant faithfulness or loving kindness. It's always shown from the stronger to the weaker. Jacob is looking to his son, Joseph, now as the stronger, the superior, the one with the power. He says, if I have found favor in your eyes, as Waltke says, Joseph now holds the power, and the dying Jacob is dependent on Joseph's favor. Joseph is now the head of the clan. This is what we saw back at the very beginning in in chapter 37, symbolized in the coat of many colors. Jacob's bowing at the head of his bed is an acknowledgement of divine care that has allowed him to pass the leadership of the clan successfully to his son. And the fact that Jacob is giving these instructions to Joseph and not the firstborn, Reuben, is a segue to the next point in your outline, number two. Reversal of Israel's firstborn, Joseph greater than Reuben. Let's start reading in the first 12 verses of chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, To my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and bowed himself with his face to the earth. We see here the dying patriarch summoning his strength to sit up in his bed as Joseph and his two sons Manasseh and Ephraim come to visit him. Sandwiched between the instructions about his death that we just looked at and his actual death at the end of the next chapter, between these scenes are the blessings to Jacob's descendants. And they come in two parts. Today we will look at the blessing of Joseph's two sons and then next week the blessing of all 12 sons of Israel as he looks into the future for all his sons. And Hebrews 11 describes this whole thing as worship. Because as one commentator said, to believe God's word and to base everything in the future upon his word, that's worship. Now I want you to see this in this worship, what Jacob does. The blessing and future that he passes on is rooted in the promise that was given to him. Verse 3, 
God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, which is Bethel, and blessed me. God Almighty is the Hebrew El Shaddai, which if you were a Christian in the 1980s, you probably associate with Amy Grant. It's a great song. And it's actually a rare title. God used it with Abraham and then Jacob, and then after God reveals the name Yahweh to Moses, it only occurs once in the rest of the Old Testament. But it's a very special name to Jacob because it captures God's power and sovereignty in bringing his promises to pass. And verse 4, his promise to Jacob is just a continuation of the covenant made with Abraham, and then Isaac, and now Jacob. I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Jacob's career begins and ends with God. But like all of us, Jacob is a mixed package, isn't he? As Boyce notes earlier in his life, Jacob had been more noted for his neglect of God than for his attention to him, often a deceiver. We do not get the sense he was really close to God. He seems never to pray. He's always trusting in his own cleverness rather than waiting on God's sovereign direction in his life. Here at the end, though, things have changed, haven't they? Because though Jacob had not always been close to God, God had always been close to Jacob. Looking back, Jacob can now see God was with him the whole time. From the moment he called him at Bethel, and had directed his path and fulfilled his promises to him. Jacob recognized that now and wanted to give testimony to it. Now, he said, I never expected to see your face. He said to Joseph in verse 11, Now God has allowed me to see your children too. As Jacob recalls God's faithfulness here, there's something very beautiful that I'd never really noticed before I studied for this. And now it may be my favorite part of the whole passage. And that's in verse 7. He says, As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. Out of the blue, he talks about Rachel. There's nothing indicating he would mention her. But as he's thinking back to God's presence with him and God's faithfulness, he cannot help but think of his beloved wife, Rachel, that he lost on the way. He didn't set out here to talk about Rachel. But any time he's remembering almost anything, perhaps she comes to mind. If you've lost a loved one, maybe you know what that's like. Now, this requires some sanctified imagination, but let's consider this scene. It's just beautiful. Perhaps something in Joseph's face or his eyes reminded Jacob of the beauty of his mother. It was on that trip to Ephrath where we lost your mother, Joseph. And I know I've told you this before, but I was in love with her the moment I first saw her. I committed to work seven years to have her as my wife, and then another seven. But I'll tell you this, the time went by like that. She was so beautiful. And I think about her all the time. What a moment. What a scene. Jacob never really stopped loving her, did he? And there's still plenty of pain. When she comes to mind, those of you who have lost loved ones know there's a sense in which the pain never really goes away, does it? And it didn't for Jacob. We sometimes imagine these patriarchs as these towering figures we can't relate to. But take this in. Jacob is a man who loved a woman. And he still feels pain for losing her. There's been a void in his heart ever since. But here's what I want you to see. 
He's not bitter. Looking back, he knows the Lord was with him even then, even in the pain. Here at the end of his life, he's come to see the Lord has always been with him. Through the good times and the bad, the Lord has always been faithful to him as he promised to be. This is a fundamental takeaway from our passage today. Jacob has learned to see the Lord's hand even in that painful drama. He's learned to see God's hand in all his story, not just the happy parts. Many of you have lived through tragedy. And like Jacob, years later it still hurts, doesn't it? And though we may not understand it, it's part of God's story for you. Brother or sister, I hope you're able to see, like Jacob, the Lord's hand in your life, even in the sorrowful times of that loss, and the Lord's presence with you, and that he loves you, and he's always been faithful to you. Okay, let's look at this reversal of Israel's firstborn. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. Normally, the firstborn would get the birthright and a double portion of the blessing. However, as we will be reminded next week, Reuben in the past had slept with one of Jacob's concubines, the mother of two of Reuben's brothers. First Chronicles tells us that in doing so, he forfeited his rights as the firstborn. Jacob gives the double portion to Joseph instead, treating him as the firstborn. And the way he does this is to adopt Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, as his own sons and bless them. Verse 5, Jacob says, They shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. So later, both of these tribes receive an allotment in the promised land. In this way, Joseph gets a double portion, you see? And even though this makes an additional tribe, or half-tribe as it's sometimes called, the allotments are kept to 12 because Levi, the priestly tribe, doesn't receive a land allotment. Now, at first glance, verse 8 seems a little confusing. Because Jacob's just been talking about these two boys, and then he says, who are these? I don't think it's because his eyesight was bad, though it was. Hebrew scholars inform us this is likely a legal requirement in an adoption rite. It's part of a a blessing ritual. So similar to language you hear at a wedding, when the officiant says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? It's not because they don't know the answer. It's because it's part of the legal ceremony to formalize what's happening. Israel is formally adopting and blessing Joseph's two sons as his own, which brings us to number three in your outline, a reversal of Joseph's firstborn, Ephraim greater than Manasseh. Let's read from verse 13 to verse 20 together. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim at his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And when Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them may my, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. 
When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Okay, so we have another reversal. As we see elsewhere in Scripture, being at someone's right hand is the place of preeminence, prominence. That's where the firstborn should be. So Joseph correctly places his eldest son, Manasseh, so that Jacob could bless him with his right hand, since he's the the firstborn. And Ephraim, the younger son, where Jacob could bless him with his left hand. But Jacob crosses his hands and blesses the younger with his right hand and the older with his left. Now maybe Joseph is rolling his eyes and shaking his head because dad's eyesight is failing or perhaps he's having a senior moment here. So he tries to help him out. Dad, this is the eldest over here on this side. And Jacob basically says, son, I know what I'm doing. The eldest, Manasseh, will be a great nation too, but the youngest, Ephraim, will be greater. Now this is the fifth time in Genesis, where we see a reversal of the birth order. Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over Reuben, and now Ephraim over Manasseh. I love what John Walton says here. As surprising as this appears to be to Joseph, to the readers of Genesis, it occasions only a wry grin. Here we go again. And this blessing, of course, comes to pass. In fact, after the king was divided into the north kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, the the prophets often referred to the northern kingdom of Israel as Ephraim because it was by far the dominant tribe. Jim Boyce here is eloquent as usual. Although his sight was almost gone, Jacob saw clearly what others with good eyes could not see. He saw the future. Also, Derek Kidner, history will show... God's hand behind the hands now laid on them. Now, just a few observations about the blessing itself. There's some great nuggets in here. First, though, before we get to that, notice verse 15. He blesses these boys. The author says he blessed Joseph. This ties to the previous point. Joseph is blessed with the double portion, the double portion of the blessing by his two sons being blessed. And and note, This remarkable truths here uh, captured in Jacob's blessing. Notice verse 15. The Lord has been my shepherd all my day, all my life to this day. Perhaps his descendant David later draws on this truth in his beautiful Psalm 23. In verse 16, we have Redeemer used for the very first time in the Bible. Jacob recognized the Lord has redeemed him from all evil. Israel has come a long way, hasn't he? He's ready to depart, but his focus is not on himself, but on passing the promises on to his descendants. Let's look now at the final reversal in our passage, the last two verses in in 48. Number four, the reversal of acquisition. God's gift greater than man's cruelty. Verse 21. 
Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope I took from the, the, from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. First note, he promises yet again God's presence. This is the theme throughout. He says to his son Joseph, I'm going to die soon, but God will be with you. This is something we've seen uh, that Joseph has experienced throughout his life, haven't we? Over and over we read when he was in prison or uh, throughout his life, all that he did, the Lord was with him. He was with Joseph. And his father Jacob reiterates the promise that the Lord will continue to be with him. Now, this piece of land that he took from the Amorites in verse 22, it's possibly an unrecorded event in, in Genesis. That's possible. However, this mountain slope that's rendered in the ESV is the Hebrew word Shechem, which sounds a lot like the people that Simeon and Levi massacred back in chapter 34 in their vengeance for what the men of Shechem did to their sister Dinah. So it could be land acquired as a result of that massacre. Some scholars argue that can't be because Jacob denounced their cruelty in what he judged as an overreaction. So it would seem unlikely in their minds that Jacob would see this land as anything good. But that could be the point. <laughs> Another reversal. That is to say, Jacob now accepts this acquired land as a blessing to give to Joseph. That which resulted from man's cruelty has become God's gift to him. We can't be sure, but either way, it is another opportunity for Jacob to show favor to Joseph as the son with a double portion of his blessing. Okay. In our remaining time, I want to briefly consider three application points that we can draw from our passage, and you'll see them under number five in your outline. First, letter A, God's presence. Believe the promise. As we've considered, the author of Hebrews chooses this worship from Jacob as this in, in the so-called hall of faith in Hebrews 11. This is Jacob's demonstration of the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. The Lord has been my shepherd, and God will be with you. As he reflects on the presence of God, and he worships. As Boyce says, of all the things the author of Hebrews could mention about Jacob's faith, he picks this moment, looking back over a long life in which God has neither left him nor forsaken him, and he praises him for it. This is a great testimony. Jacob underscores to Joseph that he's about to die. He's literally on his deathbed. Here's what I want to leave you with, Joseph. Here's what I want you to know and pass on to your loved ones. This is what I've come to know about this God we serve. Through all my trials, devastation from the heights of glory to the pits of despair, this is what I've come to know. God will be with you. You can trust that promise. He will be faithful in what he says and what he does. Way back in chapter 28, when the Lord spoke to him at Bethel, he said, God said, I am with you. Chapter 31, when Jacob flees from Laban, I will be with you, God says. Jacob looks back and sees the Lord was faithful to the promise of his presence. When Laban fell upon Jacob suddenly in the Galilean hills, God was with him. When Esau marched toward him with his army and Jacob was terrified, God was with him. When he was reconciled to his brother Esau, God was with him. 
When he feared retaliation after his sons murdered the people of Shechem, God was with him. When his beloved Rachel died, God was with him. When reports came of the death of his son Joseph, God was with him. When famine swept down across the Near Eastern world, God was with him. When he feared losing more sons, God was with him. When all his sons were reconciled and restored, God was with him. When he met and blessed the most powerful Pharaoh of Egypt, God was with him. Through all the good and all the bad, God has been with Joseph, with Jacob. And now as he waits to die, God is with him, and Jacob worships. Tremper Longman points out when we telescope into the New Testament, one of the most cherished names for Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. He's, Jesus is the ultimate expression, as we considered this morning, of God's intent to be with his people. He is, after all, God himself. His earthly ministry, he made God's presence known to his disciples. We read uh, this morning in John's gospel, the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God's promise to Jacob was exactly like Jesus' great promise to us. Like Jacob's life, Jesus knows the lives of his followers will be filled with good and bad, with joy and sorrow. At the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 24, Jesus speaks of the disasters that will come to this world. False messiahs, imposters, wars, famines, earthquakes, persecutions, apostasy, people we were convinced were believers, turning away from the faith. Jesus says some days will be so terrible Unless they were cut short, no one would survive. He speaks of tears in the heavens. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The, star, the stars will fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. But shortly after this, after he's died and rose again, Jesus commissioned to his followers to tell everyone about this good news of his coming, his victory on the cross, his kingdom. And he makes this promise to his followers. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He promises us, brothers and sisters, his presence through every good and every bad. You can count on it. He's faithful. His word is good. And he who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He will be with you. Believe the promise. As Boyce says, nothing will ever come into our lives that Jesus Christ has not foreseen. Nothing will ever happen to us that he does not control. Which brings us to the next truth to apply. Letter B, God's sovereignty. Expect the unexpected. We are his creatures. He is the creator. In this life, his ways will always be something of a mystery to us. The secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy tells us. In light of the unexpected nature of this life and God's secret will, his secret plan, believing the promise of his presence is even more important, isn't it? Believer, as things happen in your life that are unexpected, search the scriptures and see this is always the way he's worked among his people. We've already considered the reversals and things unexpected in today's passage alone. God works in ways contrary to the world's way of thinking. I think of Ephraim and Manasseh, born to an Egyptian mother. This could have been a question. Are they even legitimately considered part of the family line? 
But neither the identity of their mother nor the color of their skin was an issue. Not only are they accepted as, as legitimate grandsons of Jacob, they're actually elevated to more than grandsons, legitimate sons of Israel himself, two of the tribes which will make up the nation of God's people. I think in particular of Ephraim. Unlike the case with Joseph and Reuben, where Reuben sort of squandered his firstborn rights by his immoral behavior, there's no stated reason at all why Ephraim would receive a double blessing. Not only is he elevated to a son of Israel, but to the firstborn of Joseph. It's unexpected. God is sovereign. I love what Old Testament scholar John Walton says of this phenomenon. We see it again and again in God's economy. He says, this recurring motif could well stand as a testimony to grace, as blessing comes to those who have least reason to expect it. If you're a Christian this morning, and you understand the gospel of God's grace in Christ to you, then you know exactly what he's talking about, don't you? Blessing comes to those who have least reason to expect it. Amen. Finally this morning, let us see God's greatest reversal. Experience the cross. We've considered many reversals and ironies in today's passage, but there's one reversal in Scripture, you cannot miss. In fact, you must experience it personally. Because in that reversal lies the means of our salvation. If we're right about this acquisition of land in verse 22, Waltke makes the point that Jacob took Shechem through the cruelty of Simeon and Levi without acquitting them of their evil. Throughout redemptive history, God uses evil to achieve his aims without acquitting the guilty. He uses unbelieving Israel to establish the monarchy. He uses wicked Assyria and Babylon to punish Israel and Judah. And his greatest irony, he uses the wicked hands of evil men to shed the saving blood of Jesus Christ. God's greatest reversal was to take what appears to be the greatest triumph of evil, the crucifixion of the Son of God, and turned it into the greatest victory in the history of the universe by raising him from the dead. The only true life is found in the death of Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 10, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Will you leave it all and follow him for this life abundant, a life that experiences the promise of God's presence for the rest of your days into eternity, a life filled with ups and downs, no doubt, but all of it designed by the sovereign God for your ultimate good. Let me close with the words from Charles Spurgeon as he reflects on Jacob's verdict about God here in verse 16. Jacob says, this is Spurgeon, The Lord redeemed me from all harm. Here is his last testimony to the faithfulness of God. He had lost Rachel, how it stung his heart. But he says, God redeemed me from all harm. A great famine had come in the land, but he says, God had fed him all his life long. He'd lost Joseph and had great sorrow. But looking back now, he sees even then, God was redeeming him 
from all harm. He once said, Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. Now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. But now he eats his words and says, the Lord has redeemed me from all harm. He now believes God has always been with him, always fed him, always redeemed him, and always blessed him. Now, if you trust in this God of Jacob, this will be your verdict at the very end of your days. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your presence with us in the Holy Spirit. We're grateful for the promises you've made and keep. I pray for all those suffering today, struggling with various things, that they might cling to your promises. You're so faithful. Lord, for those here who do not understand, who have not believed on Jesus Christ for their salvation, who do not have your presence right now, may they turn from their sin, may they repent, trust in you fully for this life everlasting. For Jesus' sake, amen. You're dismissed.